Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Podcast Hardware One. Uh, one of your hosts today is me, Bradley Usopp. Um, happy Sunday to everyone. And I'm joined here by Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. Uh, happy whatever day you're listening this on. Yeah, that's that's true, isn't it? They might not listen. No one will be listening to on a Sunday because we're only just recording it today. Uh, and I'm joined also by Ewan. Howdy, folks. Uh, hope you have an interesting listening experience. I guess. I think we can always guarantee that. And Ollie as well. Hello, everyone. Fantastic. Now it will be to no one's surprise that our our first topic of conversation is COVID and the rising number of cases. In the UK, it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. It feels a little bit like we're back in March. I think I don't know if I, if anyone else feels that way, but I do anyway. Um, so uh, the latest figures um for that were released yesterday for Friday, uh, show a rise of according to the BBC website uh, a rise of fifteen thousand one hundred sixty six um new cases on uh, on Friday. That was October 9th. Um, and along with that, uh, j- just in England alone, um, 491 new hospital admissions as well. Now, it, it's not looking as bad in Lincoln. Um, Lincoln, there's only 95, um, well, 95 cases per 100,000 people. But I think there's only about 100,000 people in Lincoln. So I'm guessing that's probably just 95 cases. Um, Although the the average area in England of a similar size had seventy four apparently, so maybe maybe we're not doing great. I mean, either way, it's rising. If you look at the graph for Lincoln, um, you know we were practically uh, mid September, we were pretty much on zero or, or very few cases a day. Um, so that we're back up at ninety five, um, sort of average is is not good. Um, but I, I mean, I don't I don't know who wants to come in on this first. But fifteen thousand new cases. I mean, surely. Surely, at this point, you know the, the virus is completely out of control. Any any attempt at test and tracing that, uh, you know, there, there's no way that can be done, is there? Uh, you know, e- even if you had a very uh, a very conservative estimate of how many people each of those people have been in contact with over the last two weeks, you know, let's say five, they they've all on average been in touch with five people. You know, for, for some, it will be many times more that you know if they go into the office, go food shopping going to the gym, things like that. But let, let's let's work with a really conservative estimate they've been in touch with five people over the last week. Uh, 15,000 new cases. I think it's 17,000 the day before. So you, you're looking at what? A bit of quick maths here. Uh, five times 15, what's that? 75. So 75,000 people you'd need to test and trace um, in in what, in what one day. You know, th- There's no way the, the government um, is, is going to have the capacity to, to reach all those people. Um, so at this point, surely we've just got to accept the virus is out of control. It, it's out of control and, and thousands are going to die this winter because we, we have absolutely no way of controlling it at this point. Ewan, what do you think? Am I being too pessimistic? Um, mildly, but with good reason, if that makes sense. Um, I think we can get the virus under control, but it would probably require a lot more local lockdowns and things, maybe even a national lockdown briefly, which is not a good sign because as many uh, like kind of experts are saying, a lockdown is the thing that you don't want to do because it's a sign that you've done badly with handling the virus. Um, but yes, I think it is possible we can get the virus back under control. Um, I think one of the main things is, unlike March, we actually have a more accurate idea. I believe, of how many people have the virus 
because there was um, an interesting one with Leicester recently where they were like going, oh, we have, we know this many people have the virus now properly, and that's not a good sign. And my mum was there, who was a nurse, and her reaction was, it's because you're testing more people, you're going to have a more accurate image. Because like in March, we had this like, what was probably the highest amount of cases that we knew of was probably actually the minimum that we knew of. They're probably like at least two times more. Um, but, but that'll, that'll be true now as well, won't it? Obviously, there, yeah. there's mass testing available, but but fifteen, yeah, you know, it, it won't be fifteen thousand yeah. cases. It, it'll be more than that. Yeah, it will. Um, but I think if things, um, we are probably going to have to like either a do more more local lockdowns um, and or maybe even national one. Though it's interesting. Um, this time around is that a lot of the places that are getting the virus more heavily were places that the first time around were pretty um, did pretty well like Nottinghamshire is a good example that one's like this they're heading towards a lockdown essentially they've said they're gonna lock down at least by next Wednesday that's the idea um, and they did quite when, well. when they say lockdown what, what do they mean by lockdown uh, they're debating whether they're going to go with a Manchester-style lockdown, where you can still, you know, you can't meet people indoors, but you can still meet each other at the pub, or a Leicester lockdown from earlier in the year, where it was like, you can't meet people indoors, you can't go to the pub, you can't go to the restaurant, you're not allowed to um, socialise um, outside with other people for a while. Mm. Um and usually it's banning travel, that's the other... F- yeah, you can't leave. Um, so, from what I've heard, that originally it was meant to be Nottingham City, but because it's spread a bit more outside of that, some of the other boroughs, uh, well, in some of the districts, they plan to do a county-wide lockdown. Um, that's the plan, so... I mean, I mean, you know, a government... Leading on the BBC today is a government advisor saying um, a new national lockdown is possible. Um, and I think I think it's probably it's increasingly becoming an option on the table for the government, isn't it? Yes. Um, Tom, what do you think? Is it, is it time for a national lockdown? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that the government really have not got a hand on this at all. They've uh, they've let it slip again, like they did in March. They opened everything up far too quickly. And the the narrative that they're leading with is also extremely worrying, blaming the individuals for the rising cases as opposed to a failure in policy. Because they were pulling the furlough away from so many workers so quickly, they've all had to go back to work. They've encouraged office workers to stop working from home and get back to work. So now people are mixing and now we're seeing the virus spreading even faster. And then you can only add that people being crammed into the pub um i was i was i've been at the pub uh, i was up there on friday night and i was there on saturday both times the pubs are packed out people are then spilling out onto the streets at 10 o'clock there's there's waves and waves of people but that's not their fault that is a complete miscalculation on the, on the part of the government that, mm-hmm. that thinking mm-hmm. that this would somehow control the virus if anything it's meaning more people are going to the pub at the same time, because there's less of a, a staggering. The same can be said, as I've said, about workplaces. They're also encouraging all sorts of walks of life to be getting back to normality, whatever that normality is. 
I mean, we, we saw, we spoke about it earlier in, in other podcasts about the schools opening up. And in schools within the bubbles, there's no PPE. There's no protection for teachers and students alike. The same is being is, is very much for universities where they are being asked to wear PPE, but they're still being asked to go in for face-to-face teaching. So we're being encouraged to go back to normality, but the government's doing it far too quickly. And now we've seen cases spike to record numbers. And obviously the, the increased capacity for testing is, is a factor in those large numbers, but we cannot ignore the fact that those numbers are at that level. It's extremely concerning. You, you've only got to remember that the, the numbers that we were looking at when we initially were speaking about a lockdown during wave one, that was about 300 cases a day. We're now at 17,000 cases a day, and nobody seems to really be that worried at, at the top of the government. Now, I sincerely hope that they're worried behind closed doors and they are planning a bigger lockdown because we need the lockdown now. Um, And I know that it's going to have an impact on businesses and jobs, but that's the responsibility of the government to put in a proper furlough, to put in proper measures to ensure that people's jobs are protected, their incomes are protected, and they're not going to be finding themselves in massive amount of debt. And I I mean, 66%, which is their new number in terms of propping up the wages i think is unacceptable and people can't survive on that if you're in minimum wage yeah i mean i mean this this is the case isn't it you know uh, no no one seems to be panicking that much but but like i said fifteen thousand new cases that that for all intents and purposes the virus is out of control at this point isn't it you know i think the the only real way you could get a grip i I honestly don't see any other way than um than a national lockdown that that lasts a number of weeks if you know if we're saying at all costs we're going to get control of this virus and there is an important debate to be had now i think about um because you know when you have an initial lockdown for two to three weeks that that's fine we can sort of stomach that but you know we're now looking at having a lockdown after six or seven months of protracted economic decline uh, building mental health issues and uh, backlogs in in the nhs and all the rest of it so uh, you know a, a lockdown now is harder to implement and it's going to have a, a bigger cost to society i think than than the initial lockdown in march had um so you know there's all sorts of very important debates to be had about you know the pros and cons of doing that now but if we decided that at all costs we're going to control this virus I think the national lockdown is the only option because, you know, the virus is completely out of control when you've got 15,000 new cases a day. And that's probably going to keep rising this month. It's completely out of control. There's no way Test and Trace can handle that. Ollie, You're on mute. Sorry. Um, sorry. Um, I think I think you're absolutely right to, to kind of highlight the government failures and, and think about how are people going to respond if if we do go into a second lockdown? Because... I don't think they're going to be as as committed necessarily as they might have been the first time around because of of all the government failures which we've seen, um, which has just completely hampered the the government's uh, response and the, the the kind of respect that people have for the government. Um, I, I just think they they have no credibility. Um, so on what basis are they asking people to to put their lives on hold and and because um, yeah, it's it's their own failures. As uh, as Callum Callum highlights it on their policies, yeah, I I think you're right. Like you know, it's not really talked about anymore because because so much has happened since then. But I I only think we're in this sort of really difficult position of you know do, do we take more economic hits do, do do people's mental health take more of a, a hit or or do we control the virus? You know, I think 
we're only in that really difficult place now because of the failures to deal with the, with the crisis early on. If we'd have had a quicker lockdown and, and stricter measures earlier on, and we built up our test and trace capacity earlier on, um, then actually we it's feasible that we could we'd still be getting new cases, um, but but it's possible that we'd have a test and trace system that's able to keep a grip on it. Um, but now with fifteen thousand new cases, it's just out of control. But the reason we're in that position is because of failures earlier on by the government. So it's not a sort of, you know, it, it's often portrayed in the media now as, oh, well, you know, it's inevitable. We're, we're just going to have to learn to live with this virus is the phrase I keep hearing. Um, but we're only in that choice. We're only in that difficult place because of failures all the way through. You and you wanted to come back in. Yeah, no, I've, um, so this is from what I've been hearing. Um, there have been plans to go back to a lockdown. The problem is, and this is probably going to big be the big problem in general is that the um, Conservative government is arguing again over whether they should be locking down or not because what we're kind of getting and we're kind of getting a very good view of the Conservative Party is that it's a party of three different elements when it comes to this um, pandemic. You have the kind of Matt Hancock kind of, well we need to try and listen to the science here people um which makes sense because he has he, he has the job where if he does very badly, um, he's going to be the one that's going to be thrown onto the on the bus. So I can see why he's on that on that kind of route. You have the Boris Johnson style. While I don't like the idea of curbing people's freedoms in that kind of neoliberal sense, but still, Boris seems to genuinely believe it. And then you have the kind of Pretty Patel kind of hard hard on um hard on groups of six. Well, hard on more in groups in six, you know, use the police as much as possible, kind of, you know, kind of squad. And that's kind of the main problem, I think, with like lockdowns and with this kind of pandemic in general Britain is that we have a party who has a majority, but they can't agree on anything. They can't agree on how they want to do things. And this is why we're probably getting why I have such a bad, um, response it's not because the party is genuinely incompetent in general i'll leave that up to other people to decide it's because it just can't decide on anything without having to go through 14 different people all having to argue their different points and then someone's like well i guess we'll do this half fast measure measure as it were so that's why they've been doing so poorly it's because they can't agree on anything which is not the sign of a very stable government in general. Yeah. Um, there, there are uh, not not just issues of uh, disagreements or incompetence in, in the government, though. Um, there's also uh, a little bit of cronyism going on. So we, we've seen this throughout the pandemic, I think, you know, with, with um, uh, which companies earn certain contracts for, for PPE and, and, and you know, the, the links that Tory donors seem to often have with, with various aspects of the government's response to the crisis and how Tory donors seem to have benefited at various times from it. Um, but we've got some interesting um, new appointments. Ollie, I don't know if you want to talk us through it. Yeah, so um, Allegra Stratton has been uh, announced to be the to become the, the new Downing Street press secretary as if that was ever a, a position, um, which I don't know if uh, anyone remembers, but she was um, she did the the, hor- the horrific in- interview where she essentially, she bullied a, a full-time um, mum who was, who was claiming benefits back when um, 
George Osborne was having his kind of war on, on poor people and people on benefits. And it, it was appalling, really. And it's just shown that the people, the, the political journalists that are meant to um, to kind of criti- kind of criticise and hold accountable to uh, government policy, they just get risen to to the highest ranks of government, basically. You in? What's your take on this? Well, I was just going to say, like, the problem is generally in like British political journalism is it's very much what they would call like an old boys club and it's very much like who you know like you kind of see like a lot of the people who are like prominent political journalists quite often are like people who went to like private school and they know some politician who knows, knows someone else and that's how they you know like um it's like I remember reading that Laura Kunzberg believes herself to be um less um was it kind of like more normal because she went to a private school in Scotland and therefore is not part of the Oxbridge group, which is interesting. Um, So this doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that like a political journalist who has connections to the government is getting given a position which gives us some power. But I I get the feeling it's going to be a bit like... um, you know, like um, Sean Spicer and like the various like kind of uh, kind of like spokespersons that the um, Donald Trump government had. I think it's going to be a little bit like that. Probably a bit more successful. I don't think there's going to be like a revolving door aspect um, with this appointment. But I don't kind of see it as being anything other than she's going to become a mouthpiece for the government or she's going to essentially be the mouthpiece for uh, Rishi Sunak or yeah so it's not looking good <laughs> I, you know this this isn't the first time this has happened um you know previous heads of, of bbc's political service have gone on to to work within um you know work, work for the conservative party as well so it it's it's not as if this is a a, a one off it, it, it's a trend that happens um and of course the the flip side of it is is um you know, ch- chancellors and business secretaries and all the rest of it, um, and ending up in, in industries that they were to to some degree responsible for regulating, not you know six months previously. So there there is a a big revolving door at the, at the heart of government. Um, I I think it it belies the bigger issue though of of the media hostility to to the left. Um, and to uh, well, not not all of the left. I think Starmer is already getting a bit of an easier ride than Corbyn had in the press. Um, but you know the, the sympathies of a lot of, a lot of journalists and and a lot, a lot of people that own that have ownership of the media are obviously not with the left. So I suppose the the question, particularly poignant after the twenty nineteen defeat, is how do we get around this if if we know the media is going to be intensely hostile to any sort of socialist project, any sort of radical redistributive sort of set of policies? You know what, what's our what's our strategy for that? Because I think I sort of naively thought, oh, well, you know, if we, we have a really good social media game, if we have um, lots of members like like we did under Corbyn and, and we get them all out with a really clever doorstep campaign and um, we we can override this sort of uh, this uh, leg up that the Tories get through the media but it but it hasn't worked so I, I suppose my question is how, how do we get around this Callum? Yeah I, I'm, I'm extremely concerned by this because I think we're now starting to see a shift towards a presidential prime minister um, with with this sort of appointment, because never before has really uh, the Downing Street press officer 
been that much of a, a figure or that much of a political appointment because we don't really see them. We don't really see what they get up to. They brief the press and it's not broadcast and then they just essentially disseminate information from number 10 or uh, or number 11 and then the press then sends the information out to their sources and they get it written up. But now we're seeing this shift towards sort of press conferences not being led by the prime minister but instead by this new appointment so i i was reading up about the appointment and they're planning in november to start daily press briefings very much like the us system now, now I'm, I'm all for press briefings coming from number 10 certainly at the moment because actually people do need up-to-date information and up-to-date um uh, guidance so they know what's going on but it shouldn't be coming from a press officer. It should be coming from the prime minister, because the issue is once you have a press officer in the way, in my opinion, what happens is, is then that means that there's less accountability for the prime minister because people see the press officer giving the advice. They give the press off. They give the press officer the hard, um, the harsh treatment. If something is misspoken, if some advice turns out to be wrong, and suddenly Boris Johnson can get away with coming up with advice, coming up with guidance, but he's not the one saying it. So then he's been let off and then he can fire this press officer if something really bad and scandalous did come out. So I'm very concerned about this. And, I'm, and, I, and I agree with, with what others are saying, that it won't necessarily be um, a sort of a rabid appointment and then firing process as we've seen in America. But I, I'm still rather concerned that this is taking away from the... Uh, the position of the of the prime minister and the position of of the government in the authority they hold by giving the the mouthpiece to this to this press officer as opposed to press officer historically being more of a behind the scenes person. Ewan, what's your take? Uh, well, I'm going to kind of just mention a little bit what you mentioned earlier about um, journalism in Britain and how Labour needs to improve on it. And Labour has tried two different kind of, I think, over like the last 30 years is probably the best way to describe it. It's tried two different tactics, really. It's tried the kind of Peter Mandelson, let's get the spin doctors in and they'll make sure everything um, runs smoothly. However, the problem with that is then you give one man a lot of power. And that's why I kind of mentioned in an article how like Peter Mandelson managed to accumulate so much power is because he became in charge of how media perceives labor and therefore he was able to quite easily get rid of it, it wasn't it wasn't just that though was it it, it labor was only blair was only able to court the murdoch press because of his you know quite a seismic shift in policy as well though yeah so, so to do that strategy you sort of have to sell your soul to some degree don't yes you? and i was what i was kind of like meaning is before even like blair was a major thing under the kinnick regime is that Peter Mandelson managed to accumulate a lot of power and managed to kind of sideline a lot of more left-wing shadow cabinet members by kind of leaking stories and stuff to the press and making sure they looked bad. And that kind of diminished any power they had. So that's a bad strategy because that means you get a lot of power in one person's hands. And also it probably means that like they can always shift party policy rapidly into the direction they want to. So that's not good. But we also have the problem of the Corbyn years, which was they were trying to like make new 
types of different media. And that was a good idea, but it wasn't committed to, I think, enough. Because I think the only groups managed to really last long enough is Novara Media. Um, they're probably like the only really successful Corbin era kind of alternative media group. So we have to kind of find a different way to talk to the media. We have to find a different way to bring journalism a bit more into like, not pro-labor, but more neutral. Because I think if you say pro-labor, then it means we're just going to have, you know, it's just going to be like in America where you have like pro-Republican and pro-Democrat like um, journalists just fighting out essentially in like articles and it's pointless. Um, so what I'm thinking is, you know, we kind of need to have in general, I think control of the media needs to be decentralised as it were so you can't have one person having a monopoly in all like a, half the newspapers in Britain that's already a bad sign so that's something that a Labour government would probably have to try and pitch itself to and I know that would be incredibly unpopular with Murdoch so that would be interesting how we can get there but I think another thing would just be trying to get more journalists who maybe don't side with us but have sympathies to us um kind of conducting you know not interviews you know kind of helping being in charge of like kind of labor's journalistic media kind of policies if that makes sense i think i think as well for me it's not even so much having press that's though it's a labor as such it's more the um, yeah, because Corbyn wasn't maligned and, and his ideas weren't maligned because he was Labour. It, it, it was because of, of what, what you know, what he stood for and those values and, and, the, and the challenge they, you know, they, they would have significantly harmed the interests of, of much of the, the British establishment. So I think, you know, for me, it's not even so much, you know, because I, I mean, Novara Media certainly now isn't really sort of pro-Labour as such, I suppose. And, but even into the Corbyn era, it, was, it wasn't sort of a, a, a partisan outlet in that sense obviously it has its own political allegiances but not necessarily to a party so for me it's about outlets that are able to do this sort of longer term work of really shifting public opinion on issues like well i mean for some of it we don't need to shift public opinion public opinions there they just don't seem to be voting for it so you know things like nationalization and, and more investment in public services and higher taxes on the rich but actually the public's already there and a lot of that stuff and um, but the, there will be wider issues in in terms of you know the, the steps we need to take in terms of tackling climate change and 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 other aspects like that that i think there's there's real space for outlets that that have those longer term battles if you see what i mean so then when you have a labor party that starts coming out of policies that are in that vein some of the groundwork has already been done but by media establishments for, o- over a period of years yeah no that's yeah that makes sense <laughs> don't know what else i can really add there that's a good kind of yeah but in, I mean, in terms of talking about uh, pro labour, um, there there are obviously and Navarra Media included, um, some significant criticisms um, from from outlets that may have otherwise been supportive in, under the Corbyn era of, of Labour Party, not least over the um, the abstention sagas with, with that Keir Starmer seems to absolutely love. He loves a good abstention, does Keir? Um, so the, the the latest of these, obviously, we, we've already partly discussed um, the previous one on the overseas operation bill, 
um, where where a, a couple of lefty um, MPs um, had to resign their positions on the front bench due, due to um, voting against the government on a, on a free line whip. I believe it was a free line whip. I think so. Um, Parliament parliamentary etiquette is not my expertise. Um, but but essentially, you know, th- this was um, a, an overseas operation bill. Um, that had a number of issues with it, um, in, in, including um, issues of uh, li- limits on terms of being able to um, prosecute um, so- soldiers and, and British personnel for, for crimes that have been committed. Um, so, so obviously, as a matter of conscience, uh, a number of MPs voted against the whip on, the, on that issue in the Labour Party, because Labour's policy was to abstain um, ra- rather than vote against the bill. Um, and the same issues happened again um, this week with the... Um, I don't know what the official name for the for the bill is. I don't know if anyone knows the official name, but it, it it's been known as the the spy cops bill. Essentially, it's it's a bill that aims to to um, clarify and regulate um, when when police officers and, and other personnel can commit crimes in in the line of duty. So, I think the example I heard is that you know, obviously, if you are uh, you know trying to uh, in you know, get get intel on a, on a terrorist group or something, you, you're undercover. You, you may have to commit certain crimes um, in, in order to maintain your cover. And I, and I think the, the way it works at the moment is there's not really any formal rules set in place that, that govern that process. So Labour's argument, and, you know, they've got a point that, you know, we, we don't necessarily want to throw the whole bill out because uh, there's currently not regulation on this and we feel like this is something that should have some sort of democratic oversight and, and should have a proper basis in law. Um, that said, there there are a, a number of issues in in terms of uh, you know the bill not clarifying certain things that people feel should shouldn't be allowed um, whilst police are undercover. Um, so Labour has chosen again to to abstain um, on this bill. Uh, I don't know who wants to come on this. Callum, what, what do you think? Was was Labour right to to whip an abstention on this? Absolutely not. I think that the important thing for the opposition if if we principally want to see regulation come in on on certainly the undercover policing then we should be looking to amend the bill we should be looking to make changes to the bill and then voting on the bill on the basis of that we shouldn't be abstaining i can understand well that, I, that, I, that I mean, is the plan though, isn't it that that, that, that know, is the plan but we shouldn't be abstaining plan. We shouldn't be abstaining. If we're not happy with a bill, vote against it out of principle that it's not the bill that we want to see passed. I can understand and I do sympathise with the strategy that they're taking, but they're, um, I, I can, the way I've had it explained to me and a lot of people have, have, have justified it is that we, it's a bill that's necessary, but it's a bill in its current form that is not what we want. And that's completely fine. And I think we do need to have some sort of democratic oversight and some sort of regulation on how the police conduct themselves in in an undercover situation and that's perfectly fine but the issue is for me is if you're not happy with the bill don't abstain make it very clear you're not happy with it in its current form and you know and and that's certainly lacking some nuance and obviously parliamentary uh, um, nuances is, is always ongoing both in the, in the labor and, and conservative rings but in my in my um, opinion, really, we should be opposing it strongly if we're not happy with it. And it's and it's been the case for a lot of things now that we're standing by. One of the biggest criticisms of the Labour Party over the last few years is that we weren't being 
a proper opposition. So why is that? Why have those accusations not come out now? So it obviously goes back to uh, narratives in the media and who exactly is sympathetic to who. But I, I think that really as, as, as an opposition party, albeit an opposition party that are massively behind in terms of the number of seats, we should be making a stand and saying, we're not happy with this bill, but we're willing to work with you to make it so it can pass through Parliament with bipartisan support. I mean, I mean, this this is the point, isn't it? So of the leadership's official sort of route on this um, is is that they want to get a number of amendments passed to the bill at the committee stage, which, which is what it goes to now after after this, this is the second reading. So you know, it, it being passed the in Parliament today, isn't it passed yet? It, it goes through committee stage, and then the, then there's a final reading and things like that. Um, so the, the leadership's plan is to is to bring forward a number of amendments um, at the committee stage. And then I suppose, in theory, if those were passed to, to their satisfaction, they would then potentially vote in favour of the bill if, if those amendments were passed. Um, but, you know, it's sort of fantasy land and stuff, isn't it? It's not going to happen. Um, the, the government has an 80-seat majority in the House and you, you don't overcome that gap as an opposition unless you're an unprecedented sort of um, era. You know, you saw like Brexit, you know, that, that was, you know, we saw all sorts of defections and, and rebellions on the government side. Um, but that you know that was a, a almost unprecedented histor- historical moment over Brexit. You, you're not really going to overturn um, an 80 seat majority unless it's on on you know in exceptional circumstances. So you know the the fact of the matter is is the bill is going to go as as is in the final reading. It's it, none of Labour's proposed amendments are, are they're very very unlikely to pass at the committee stage. Um, so you know that leaves Labour with basically uh, if you know they're going to have to vote against the bill at some point. Or, or maybe they're not. You know, I don't know what Keir's plan is once it gets to the final reading and the amendments have passed. Maybe he's going to whip people to abstain again. I don't know. Um, but there's not really going to be a point when this bill gets transformed into something that they're they're really happy with and they can then whip everyone to vote in favour of it. That's just not going to happen at any point. So you know, the, the argument I've heard a lot on social media is, well, if you're going to have to have that fight at some point, if you're going to have to stand against it at some point, why not just get on with it? If if there's no you know, the other options aren't really going to happen, the fantasy land stuff, just get on with it and vote against it. I think it, it's a problem in that obviously Keir is going down this route of um, this whole sort of, you know, trying to avoid the culture war traps that, that Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson are setting for him along the way. Um, and and on, on both the overseas operations bill and now the spy cops bill, the, the, I think probably the headline that Boris wants is that, you know, the Labour Party is against our soldiers, the, the Labour Party is against our, our police forces. And, and Keir, I think, is trying to dodge that, that trap that's being set. Um, but I don't, I don't know even if I mean someone you know coming on this if if you want, but I I don't think abstaining on it is going to dodge that bullet because I mean there's a a piece for Labour List by um, Lloyd Russell um, on on this and and basically he he's made the point of if you remember the infamous welfare bill in 2015 um, that Harriet Harman um, basically whipped people to, to abstain on um, that that's remembered as as people you know not 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 supporting that bill you know it, it's gone down in in infamy that, that Labour abstained on that so I don't think abstaining is necessarily a sort of a that a dodging the bullet in the way that Keir thinks it is um and already he points out in the article already um the Labour Party press is is, is put sorry not the Labour Party Conservative Party is already putting emails out to their supporters um saying and I'll quote it from the article um just yesterday, Sir Keir Starmer asked his party to rediscover its patriotism, but today Labour refused to back our bill to protect our soldiers and veterans, despite tens of thousands of you demanding they do the right thing. 
proving that we are still the only party who will deliver on its promises to our troops. So all this stuff that Stalin's really worried about, that the, Labour, that, that the Tories are going to throw against him if he, if he refuses to back the bill, is what's happening anyway on the abstention. So why not just bloody, you know, vote against the thing and be done with it? Ewan? Well, I was just going to kind of say anyway, um, I think you are right about how the kind of cultural aspect, and I think, because from what I've heard, the next, like, Rishi Sunak's bill, which should be coming through soon, which is about bringing furlough back in and everything but on like a two-thirds instead of 80 percent which it was originally was is that labor's actually planning to vote against that and what they're planning to do from what the sounds things because lisa and andy mentioned it in an article is the plan to vote against it and they're also planning to hope for northern conservative mps to also vote against it too um so they can bring so they can have Rishi Sunak do it again and bring in furlough back in as an 80% kind of thing. So what I'm kind of getting is, my feeling is, is that a lot of the things about abstaining stuff recently has been, it feels a bit like Starmer kind of like get wobbling and trying to get his like used to his, like, you know, like a, ba- uh, like a baby deer trying to like <laughs> start like trying to walk. It feels a little bit like that. He didn't feel confident that he could vote against a bill just yet, which is not really an excuse. But I get I get that's the feeling with a lot of his leadership is that right at the moment he's been trying to go, well, I think this is what we should be trying to do if we're trying to look like we're not, you know, stopping amendments that could make us look bad in a culture war. And then it doesn't matter anyway. So I think in the future, things may change. But I'm still not entirely confident if that makes <laughs> any sense. I, I think we I think we could all share your lack of confidence in, in the Labour leadership. I, th- I don't think anyone will disagree with that. Ollie, what do you think? I think that this is not what an effective opposition does, as Callum says. Um, it, it's just it's just incredibly frustrating because. Uh, Boris Johnson has rightly pointed out, kind of in, in the in the Prime Minister's questions uh, for the past few weeks, um, he's used it as a massive focal point about um, how Starmer is um, abstaining, abstaining on just everything, almost like I think he uh, he abstained on um, the rule of six, which is just about the only um, like Tory kind of policy that makes sense, um, and it. It's just, it's just incredibly frustrating, really. Um, he um, he is kind of cited as, as lib- among liberals as the new kind of um, effective opposition, and it's it's a new leadership for Labour. But this isn't what it looks like. And I think Callum said earlier, um, Corbyn had more government defeats than than almost any um, uh, Labour opposition in history, and and that was an effective opposition, like actually making change by voting against bills that you don't agree with, which is what, is what it's, that's, that's there for. That's, that's how it's supposed to function. You shape politics through opposing things, not by abstaining on them. Yeah, and, and I remember during, during the Corbyn era, you know, you, you would have people that were more on the centre of the party or the, or the right of the party. Um, they, would, they would constantly ask, you know, where's the opposition? Um, they, they, they had all sorts of criticisms about Corbyn's um, approach in, in Parliament. And you know, and that's not to say that Corbyn didn't mess up um, a, a number of times during, during his leadership. 
Um, but there was this constant retort of where's the opposition, you know, what, what, and and often from from Remain, um, you know, supporters and and Lib Dems as well, asking where the, where's the opposition. None of those people are asking that question now when the Labour the Labour Party is abstaining on what are actually quite quite crucial human rights issues. Um, so I think yeah, it's it's a little disingenuous that that, that was thrown at Corbyn and and it's not being thrown at, at Starmer now. Uh, Callum, I'm interested in your thoughts on how Labour Party members should respond to this. What what should we do in the party to 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 respond to this frustrating lack of of proper opposition in Parliament? Well, I, I would certainly first and foremost encourage all members to get active if they're not already active. The only way you can influence uh, Labour Party politics internally is by attending meetings, obviously online at the moment, taking part in campaigns where possible, put yourself forward. I know it's a cliche, but do try and become an officer or, or join the EC in your CLP because it does make a difference and you can start to change how we operate as a party. Obviously, at a CLP level, you can be then influenced in putting out statements. We can actually be active in our community and actually people, um, certainly uh, we've tried it in Lincoln and we, we want to see, they seem to be actually concerned about the issues of the day, not sort of a talking box, but actually some a, a, um, a CLP that's active, a CLP that's looking to make a difference. Um, I think also, if you if you're lucky enough to have a Labour MP, I know there's there's a reduced number at the moment. Um, speak to your Labour MP if you're a member. If you're not a member, you still write them a letter. Tell them you're concerned at the approach of the Labour Party to this, because I know I am. I'd like to see an effective opposition that's scrutinising and holding the government to account and voting against them where necessary. So I I, I really basically that the message is get active get out there don't be disheartened if you're unhappy with the Labour Party I know a lot of people have left because of Starmer some people have joined because of Starmer but equally we should be active and we should be getting involved and if you want to see a, a fully functioning opposition speak to your comrades in the party uh, Ewan you want, you want to add to that uh yeah, no, what I can add is from the position of someone that's been in, um, who like joined a CLP, um, a kind of what is now been nominated by Conservative MPs in 2010. And I agree with a lot of, what well, a lot, blah, 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 sorry, uh, a lot of with Callum on that. But also I will add um, a lot of CLPs in kind of like areas where dominated by conservative MPs the council has been lost from us like in the area I live we have only two MPs uh, two councillors I mean who are both Labour so what you kind of do there is you have to go a lot more grassroots a lot more local and you have to kind of aim on things that actually matter to the people that live like most people uh, sadly to say don't you know don't care about big national things they care more about whether they, you know, as as what um, the other Callum said, um, whole politics, that old chestnut. Um, and people do care about that. So what you have to do as a CLP is you have to aim towards convincing people that, yes, we will, we do care about big national stuff, but also we do care about you. Like our CLP's been doing a lot of stuff. We're trying to get more doctors for our GPs, uh, um, for one of the kind of like, you know, 
GP places. Uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff with like uh, leisure centers and things that are going to be closed down by the council for very arbitrary reasons, um, things like that. And if you do stuff like that, it it does make it impact. And I think it's more helpful in some ways than kind of going with this kind of big national route because yes big national things matter we all are dependent upon what parliament does but at the end of the day a lot of people um you know their livelihoods matter whether they can you know they get free parking in in their local town or if it's like you know two hours they have to pay for it like that does matter to some people for their livelihoods more doctors in the local area do matter because it means whether or not you get you know seen by a gp um particularly now it's been very important so yes, agree with Callum um, and get involved. With it you know people have to get involved in CLPs, not only to voice their issues on national matters, but also to help out on local issues, to help out on things that may not seem as big and worthy as um, you know potholes is always the classic one. Sure, it doesn't sound like you know the big national kind of stories that you some people maybe want. But they do help people in the long run, which really is what the Labour Party kind of, if you dig down to its core, kind of kind of beliefs is that it is about helping other people, making sure everyone has a chance to, you know, have a good life and things. So do get involved in local CLPs is my my message. Um, and campaign, do stuff with them and make sure that, you know, everyone's good <laughs> in the local area. Yeah, and, and if you're not a member of the Labour Party, there are obviously there are other political organisations available. Um, you know, there's there's lots of uh, anti-austerity self-support groups out there, and um, so so get involved in them as well. Um, and pot, everyone hates potholes; they they are annoying, aren't they? So let's try and fix them if we can. Although in Lincoln, I believe the roads is down to county council, isn't it, Callum? Uh, that is correct. Yeah. So. Uh... Get on to those Tories in the county council about it. We do have some Labour representation, but it's not huge. No, they, they are quite outflanked by, by Tories on, on the county council. So, fix, I think that brings us to the end of our, our pod today. Um, I, I don't know if anyone's got any final words they want to throw in. Any pearls of wisdom for people to take away? You and you've got some wisdom for us. Yeah, no, I have some. Uh, as I said, you know, join a CLP. Um, but also, um, I'd just say to all our listeners is to, um, if you are interested in politics and stuff, uh, read more on economics. I know that sounds very odd to say, but uh, if you're interested in labour, read more about left-wing economics. I know it sounds incredibly boring, but um, you can't really argue the points properly, in my opinion, unless you don't have a vague idea of what you know, you're know you arguing for. So that's my message for today if anything <laughs> you don't have to understand it all but at least if you have a vague idea what it actually means then i think you can argue your points better that's my pearl of wisdom for today we should we should uh produce a a, a starting guide shouldn't it uh, you know here's where to start on on lefty economics on socialism <laughs> yes don't get me to write it though it'll just be about brian gould and positive money so uh... <laughs> i mean they're not bad places to start are they oh they aren't but i, I don't know if they're everyone's cup of tea well we'll work on that watch watch out on the uh, on the blog folks we'll, we'll we'll work out something to as a as a starting place for, for reading about these issues yes. okay well it's a uh... 
it's a re- cloudy Sunday afternoon for me um, in Lincoln. Um, and, it, and it's goodbye from me on this cloudy afternoon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, Callum? Yeah, goodbye everyone. Have a uh, have a good week. Um, it's it's cloudy. I'm also in Lincoln, so um, hopefully it will perk up. But it's certainly not looking that way. Hopefully politically it will perk up anyway. Uh, yeah, there's always hope for that, isn't there? Um, and it's goodbye from you and uh, see see you folks. Um, well, not see you, but you know, goodbye. Um, yes, I have to agree with Callum's sentiment. I hope it does perk up politically, and if not, you know, keep the faith in all that. And it's goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, be, be sensible. Uh, oppose the democracy. Democracy. <laughs> I love that. Great. Okay, thanks, folks. Bye.